0: What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. Well, what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? If you're engaged, Aaron is available to sing at your wedding. It's just going to cost you. So um, anyway, that was a a great intro to what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pray and jump into the scriptures together. Father, we love you. And our prayer is that you would open our hearts to hear your voice. Would you be our teacher this morning? We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're new with us this morning, if you're a guest, you're jumping into um, a series that we've been in for the last two weeks, and we're exploring the question, what does it mean to be human? And there's a lot attached to that thread when you start to pull it. There's a, a lot of implications of, of exploring this topic of what does it mean to be human. In the first week, we said sort of on a just fundamental level, what it means to be human is, is four things. It means that we are created beings, that were created in the image of God. That we are this composite of both breath and dust, that we are spirit and flesh, body and soul, and that we were created to commune with the divine, to commune with our creator. And that was sort of fundamentally what it meant to be human. And last week we built off of that and said we have to do something when we get up in the morning. We can't, just, we can't just be. That's the most important thing about us, but it's not the only thing about us. And we said as human beings, what we do is we carry the image of God, and that meant three things. We are created to create, we are wired to work, and we were formed for friendship. And today what we're going to do is we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this idea that we were and are formed for friendship, we have relationships and marriage, that's all a part of that piece of the pie that we're going to explore today. Kelly and I, like you, have um, a number of friends who send out Christmas cards, and one of our favorite things to do is to hang those cards up when they come in over the Christmas season so that we can uh, catch up with old friends or at least see what they're up to and, and get a picture in our mind and maybe even pray for them. And, and my favorite thing about looking at those pictures is to try to imagine what's behind the picture, because if you did any of those photo shoots like our family did, that, that we got a number of good ones, thanks to our great photographer, but there was also a number of really bad ones too. That for every good one you get, I don't know what the ratio is, but I'm going to say it's about 50 to 1, that every every good one you get, and it all depends, there, it's a complicated equation. It depends on how young your kids are and how um, good of a smile you want them to have, grading it as good. But... There's, there's 49 pictures that didn't look quite as good as that one that was on your Christmas card. Anybody want to say yes and amen to that? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And we have this ability, don't we, especially in our social media world, to be able to put out the best pictures of us. You walk through um, a grocery store line, pick up a fashion magazine. Did you know that 100% of the pictures in a fashion magazine are touched up or airbrushed in some way, shape, or form. That nobody looks like that. Not even them. Not even them. Nobody looks like that. I I have firsthand experience in my modeling career of this happening to me. uh, A number of years ago, I, I woke up to friends sending me text messages and forwards of an email. Three or four friends sent me the same forward, and the forward was special deal on teeth whitening San Diego. It was an Amazon living ad that's sort of like Groupon. It was a special that they were running for teeth whitening, and I'm like, listen, I know my teeth aren't perfect, but this is a little bit strong of an intervention, you guys. Like, (laughs) What did did you do? And so I, I opened up the email, and this is what I saw. The top picture was... My dentist's Amazon local ad that went out to tens of thousands of people around North San Diego County. Now, here's the thing. He poached this off of my Facebook account. Didn't ask me. Didn't know he was running the ad. Not only that, not only that, you may or may not be able to notice the bottom is the original. The top is his attempt at photoshopping our teeth whiter. And I would add, if you could see it closer up, it is a poor attempt at Photoshop. And I'm going, this is my launch into a modeling career right here is, Yeah, I get it. I feel the pain of, yeah, a, amen. This is, this is only my side job. This is what I do. In the mo- yeah, yeah. <laughs> this morning, the conversation we're going to ha- have is going to feel like an airbrushing it's gonna feel like a a picture that you're gonna look at and go, there's no way. There's no way relationships can work like that. There's no way marriages can function like that. That is too high of a bar. We are all going to fall short. And what I wanna say at the onset is, "Yep, we are, we are. But unless we know the goal, Unless we know what the perfect picture looks like, we will never fully chase after all that God has put in the hearts of us as being human beings. Unless we know what God's design is, we won't chase after it wholeheartedly and ferociously like we were designed to do. And so, if you're married this morning, my hope is that you take notes and that you walk away from this going, that's a high calling, and I don't think we're there. And just so you know, we're all going to have that same conversation on the way home. None of us is going to look at each other in the car on the way home and go, well, I think we nailed that, right? I think we've arrived. None of us are. And so my hope is that you take these pictures that we're going to look at this morning, four pictures of the picture-perfect marriage, and you use them as a conversation starter to start to wrestle with God's design for your marriage. I always hesitate in speaking about a subject that I know is difficult for roughly half of the people in the congregation, because there's people here. And you've walked through divorce, and the pain and the hurt of that is very present. And anytime we talk about marriage, it rises to the surface. I, I hear you. There's people in this room who have lost spouses recently. And so to be reminded of the life that you had and that you no longer have is a really difficult thing. There's people in this room that are single not by choice. That you would, you would love to find somebody to share your life with in this type of way. And so to that group of people, that whole group of people, here's what I say. One, um, I, I want to I hear I I hear you and I've planned this message with you in mind also. That my hope would be As we jump into the scriptures together and see God's ideal design for not only marriages, but also in friendships and relationships, that we would have this picture held up, that our hearts would be captivated, and that it would, in the end, cause us to turn back to God and say, thank you, regardless of whether we're married, single, divorced, or widowed. Genesis chapter 2, would you open there with me? Genesis chapter 2. As we continue this series that we're calling, This Is Us, an exploration of what it means to be human. After God has created the heavens and the earth, he's placed man in the garden to work it, to keep it, to have dominion over it, to tend it, the scriptures say, we come across verse 18 in chapter 2. It says this, and then the Lord God said, it is, say those two words with me, church, Not good that man should be alone. Now, if you're just following along, if you're fresh and new to the scriptures and you had just read chapter one of Genesis, you're coming up on chapter two, this statement would be shocking to you. Because all that you know about the story of God up until this point is that God has created... He's stepped back from his creation, and the Trinity has given each other a high five and said, it's, we did really good work here. Very good, it says at the end of Genesis chapter one. Now, nothing has changed in between the declaration from God, it's very good, and where we find ourselves in chapter two. Sin hasn't entered the world. There's no fall yet. It's that God observes and looks and sees it's not good that man or even you could say humanity should be alone. That that's not God's design. Now, if you're writing a story, we would call this the inciting incident. That something happens to turn the story a little bit. Some drama is added. The drama is God looking at his own creation and going, well, that's incomplete. That's not the way that I designed this to work. Now, here's a question. Here's a question. Is God caught off guard? I mean, is he looking at this going, oh, you know what? I never thought of that, that it should be man and woman. I never, that never crossed. No, 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 no. This is written in this way for our benefit. The story is set, the story is told to draw out a piece of what it means to be human. That if we miss, we miss the entire picture. God is not surprised. God is not caught off guard. The passage communicates something deep about what it means to be human. And here's what it communicates. That shared life is God's design for abundant living. That shared life is God's design for abundant living. You may have noticed that the series is entitled, This Is Us, Not This Is Me. That's intentional. That's intentional. I love the way that Tim Keller, the great pastor and author, states it. He says, the Genesis narrative, and he's talking about this story up until this point, is implying that our intense relational capacity, created and given to us by God, was not fulfilled completely by our vertical relationship with him. That God created you with a capacity that's more than just what he can fill. Let that sink in on you for just a moment. He created you with a capacity, with a desire that other people should be a part of your life also. Listen to the way Keller continues. Not not fulfilled completely by our relationship with him, God designed us to need horizontal relationships with other human beings. We touch the person next to you on the shoulder, unless you're married to him. okay? Touch the person next to you on the shoulder, and you can touch them on the thigh or whatever, but, um, and tell them, I need you. I need you. Yeah, I need you. Because shared life is God's design for abundant living. Being human is not an individual sport. It's a team sport, You cannot be all that God has designed you to be alone. In fact, I would say that isolation, according to the Genesis narrative, isolation and loneliness is inhumane. It's anti-design. It goes against the threads that God has wired into the fiber of our DNA. Uh, McGill University did a study in 1951 where they wanted to try to identify the effects of solitary confinement on people. And they had a number of volunteers, I think most of them were men, um, and to be in solitary confinement. And they had things that inhibited their ability to hear. They had goggles that they put on their eyes. And the experiment was set to last six weeks. None of the people involved in the survey lasted more than one week. And after one week, What they identified was that everybody involved was having psychiatric breaks. They were starting to go a little bit crazy, and they were starting to hallucinate. Why? Well, well, because shared life is God's design for abundant living. We actually need each other. We can't exist without one another. And so in this passage of scripture, this is the foundation. The foundation is it's not good to be alone. And what I want to do is give you four pictures of what life together is intended to be by the goodness and the grace of God. And each one of these pictures is going to progress to a new and deeper level of intimacy that you and I were designed to experience under his good grace. So here's the way it starts. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper who's fit for him. You have to know the problem that God is solving in the creation of both male and female. The problem that God is solving is not an issue of procreation, it's an issue of relationship, it's an issue of loneliness. Before God ever says to Adam and Eve, hey, it would be a good idea for you guys to make babies, what he's, the problem he's solving is it, you need other people on this journey of life and this journey of faith with you. And so here's the first picture. The first picture of marriage, the first picture of relationship, the first picture of friendship is side by side, shared friendship. And don't you love, love, love? that God is a God who cares about us so holistically, that it's not just this ethereal, spiritual relationship. That's good, that's necessary, that's important. But that's incomplete. That God cares about us in a holistic manner and in so doing creates us with the capacity for friendship and then fills that void with the quote-unquote other. I love the way that C.S. Lewis so poignantly writes about Friendship. He says this. He says friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, "What? You too? I thought I was the only one." Where there's struggle that's shared, and instead of casting stones, there's this declaration, "Me too." I I, I wrestle with that too. Did you know that in your your marriage, if you're married, that you were created, you were designed, your marriage was forged in order that your friendship would be deepened? Friendship is not a nice addition to a marriage. It's an essential element. It's part of the way God's wired you. It's part of the way that God has designed you. The question then becomes, well, what does it look like to really truly be friends? Because are we talking about some trite sentimentality? No, the the scriptures actually talk about that, and I'll just give you two things at a really cursory level. What does it mean to be friends? The the author of Proverbs, Solomon, he writes about this. He says this, number one. He says, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for what? Say it with me. Adversity. Right. So friendship, biblical friendship has this steadfastness associated with it. This last week, I read a book called Same Kind of Different as Me, and it's this great story of this African-American man who was, uh, grew up poor and homeless and this wealthy um, white art dealer, and it's their story of coming together and becoming friends, and at the very beginning of their friendship, Denver, the African-American man, looks at Ron, this white Anglo art dealer, and he says to them, you white people, when you fish, you do catch-and-release fishing. You catch something and then you let it go. He said, I don't want to do friendship that way. If we're going to be friends, it's going to be until the end. And that's not unique. That's the way any honest, true, biblical friendship is. When things get hard, we hold on tighter. We don't tap out and let go. That's the picture Solomon's painting, the second characteristic is, let me just read this to you. Better is the open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Have you ever had a friend who told you something in honesty that really hurt and really stung? Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, because this is a A factor in being a friend with another person is speaking the truth in love even when you know it's going to sting and even when you know it's going to hurt. One of the things I love most about my wife is if I ask her, hey, am I being crazy? Am I off my rocker? Have I lost it? She will say to me, yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. You have. It's been a while. Thank you for asking, right? I mean, But this is a part of genuine biblical friendship that we speak into each other's lives. And it's the way that God's wired us, not just for friendship and relationships in general, but for marriage. That's a great part of a marriage. Wounds of a friend who you know isn't letting go. I love the way that Keller puts it. He says it like this. Christian friendship is not only about going to concerts together or enjoying the same sporting event. Although, let's be honest, if you aren't Bronco fans, it's sort of a deal breaker, right? Okay. It is the deep oneness that develops as two people journey together towards the same destination. It's not just shared interest. It's deeper than that. It's friendship. I'm going to speak love, and I'm not letting go. So picture number one, side by side, shared friendship here's picture number two verse 18 continuing in the story it's not good that man should be alone I will make a helper fit for him now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them whatever the man called every living creature that was its name the man gave all the name, names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, all the guys together in unison, I, want, I just want us to let out an amen for that, okay? One, two, three, amen, amen. Aren't we glad that there was no helper found fit for Adam amongst the animals, I mean, we read the story, we just sort of glaze over it, but I mean, think of what's behind the story. What if, like, there's this negotiation going on between God and Adam, and God's like, listen, the rhino could work. We could, we could make, it's not originally what I had in mind, but I could, we could make this work with a few minor adjustments. No, praise the Lord that there was not a quote-unquote helper fit for him. Now, now, we have done massive Damage because we haven't done due diligence in asking the question, what does this word helper mean? Now, in the Hebrew, it's the word ezer. Will you say that with me? Ezer. Not to be confused with geezer, okay? He's not looking for a geezer, looking for ezer. And ezer is used 21 different times in the Old Testament. Two of the times are in this passage alone, 16 of those other times. Are used in reference to not a female, not a woman. They are used in reference to God. To God. Let me show you. Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. The God of my father was my easer, was my my helper, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 7. And this he said of Judah, this is God speaking here, or this is Judah speaking, O Lord the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people with your hands contend for him and be a, say it with me, easier, a help against his adversaries. 16 out of 21 times the word helper is used in reference to God. We've often viewed helper as somebody who comes alongside of Adam to like make, make him coffee and do his laundry, <laughs> which isn't at all, at all the way that this picture in Genesis is being painted. The picture in Genesis is of a co-equal coming alongside of another to fortify and to add strength. When the scriptures talk about a helper, they will sometimes use it in God being a helper and a shield or a protector. The other times helper's used, it's used in reference to a military. So you could... Husbands, if you want to, you can say to your wife, babe, you're looking militant today. I mean, just strong. I am grateful to have you by my side. So you have helper, one word, which means somebody who comes alongside of and strengthens. And then suitable, a suitable helper. Now, suitable is a little bit more difficult in the Hebrew. It has this dynamic. A probably good direct translation would be like opposite, So so you're like me, you're made of the same material, you're made of the same stuff, but you're you're not the same, you're not the exact same, you're not a mirror image. But if you were to look back in this Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2 narrative, what you'd find is that they are looking for something specific when they're looking for a helper. It's somebody who's going to work alongside of Adam to subdue and have dominion over the sacred space that God has created. They're looking for somebody who's going to help and keep to tend the garden. And then finally, not firstly, finally, they are looking for someone who would help procreate, that they would be fruitful and multiply together. But before they ever procreate, they have a mission. They are linking arms to do something with God for God's purposes by God's design. So marriage first is side by side shared friendship. Second, it's arm in arm, a shared mission, a shared mission. Now, as a point of clarification, please don't hear me saying that men and women have the exact same role and function. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm not even touching on role and function. We're talking about essence, We're talking about who they are in God's created design. Are there different roles and different functions? Absolutely sure. But the most important thing is that before there's different roles, there's a shared mission. They have different things that they're executing in regards to that mission, different ways that they're ministering. Certainly, sure. And those vary based on couple, but the mission is in front of them. And the mission is paramount. You show me a marriage that's lost its love. And I'll show you first a marriage that lost its mission. Because that always starts to erode first. Before we ever fall out of love, we fall out of mission. So why is shared mission so good? Well, here's two just brief reasons. One, have you ever noticed you get more done together than you do alone? (laughs) It's just simple math, although it's actually more than just math, it's actually multiplication, that you get exponentially more done together than you get done alone. So it's part of God's design in saying, I want you to have a mission that's worth chasing after with some um, veracity in your life. But two, there's more joy in doing it together, isn't there? I mean, have you ever watched a comedy alone and thought, man, that was funny, but it sure would have been funnier to hear somebody else laughing with me? Or have you ever watched a sunset over the Pacific Ocean, just the sun die into the edge of the sea? Without somebody to share it with, it's not quite as enjoyable. It's not quite as fun. So whether it's in marriage, relationships, or friendship, God's design for togetherness is for our joy. It's for our life. And we need a mission Let me me speak to those who are married in this room. Your marriage needs a mission. And oftentimes what happens is our kids are our mission while they're in our house if we have them. And then what happens to many couples as they're empty nesters is their kids leave the house and they're left wondering, "What's what's our mission now? Because this was the mission. So we have this new sociological phenomenon that they call empty nest divorce syndrome. Where many empty nesters are saying, the thing that held us together, the mission that we had because we need one, was our kids, and now that's gone. So can I encourage you? Kids are a great mission. They can't be the only one, though. So how do you, if you're married, how do you and your spouse serve together? Because that's part of God's design for you. That's part of the way that he wired you in the fabric of your being that you would link arms together to make a difference in God's good world. And if you're not married, can I just say, one of the things that creates community most strongly is a shared mission. You show me a strong church, and I will show you a church that has a strong mission. You show me a church that's fracturing, where community is difficult, and where people are at odds with each other. I will show you a church that probably lost sight at some point in time of their mission, the reason that God brought them together in the first place. Because mission has this way of creating community and unity and deepening friendships, relationships, and marriage. It's part of God's design. So we have side by side, arm in arm, two pictures of relationships. Let me give you a third one, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and he brought her to the man. Now, just a quick note on this word rib. In the Hebrew scriptures, this word rib is never used in our Old Testament anatomically. It's never used to describe an actual physical rib. It's used to picture The side of something. It could be the rib of a house. It could be the rib of a hill. And so the picture that we have is of God creating Eve out of Adam or cutting him in half and and making female or making woman out of him. So here's the picture that God is painting. That men alone are not enough to embody and picture the image of God. It's man plus woman that is the image of God. Not man plus woman in marriage. Man plus woman in general is the picture of what God has designed. It's what God has created. So in order to have a complete picture of humanity, you can't just look at one gender. It's incomplete and it's insufficient. In commenting on this section of scripture, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century says this. He says, For since the woman should not have quote unquote authority over the man out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it would not have been fitting for her to have been formed out of his head. Nor, wouldn't that be funnier I mean he cut his head in half and took okay, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Nor, since she is to be not, not to be despised by the man as if she were his servile subject, would it have been fitting for her to be formed from his feet? No, this is a side-by-side, shared mission creation from God, verse 23. I, I mean, and don't you, if this is a movie, at the end of verse 22, don't you just hear the music slowing down, slow motion, and as it says that she was brought to the man, it's slow motioned wind blowing through Eve's hair, and Adam just going, thank you, Jesus, right? I know you could have made the elephant work, but that would have been awkward. She's beautiful. And then you have verse 23. This is at last. He's going, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of Man, it's this um, wordplay in the Hebrew she shall be called a woman or Isha, for she was taken out of man. Ish, it's this beautiful poetic rendering. Did you know? Did you know that the first human words ever recorded in the scriptures are a love poem? That's what this is. It's Adam seeing his soon to be wife Eve and going, God, you're amazing. She's, she's like me, but she's different than me, thank you. She's bone of my bone, she's flesh of my flesh. Jesus, thank you for not pairing me together with one of those animals. I love you for that. And he breaks into poetry, he breaks into song. I mean, Adam in the garden turns into Casanova, right? Which is ironic because he doesn't have to woo her, right? She's, she's presumably the only one. And so's he. He's got a captive audience here. <laughs> yeah. And yet, he expresses something deep within us. We prefaced the offertory this morning by going, hey, this is a, this is a secular song. This is a, this is a love song. And yet, each love song you hear on the radio should shout to you that there is a design deep within us as human beings to connect with other people, that shared life is God's design for abundant living, whether it's in a relationship, in a friendship, or in a marriage. Verse 24, therefore, so in light of the fact that there is a helper suitable, a like opposite, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And by the way, Dan mentioned that he'd be willing to do a Q&A session on whether or not Adam and Eve had a mother and a father after the sermon, so he'll be up front, right? <laughs> and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh they shall come together in a way that's unique this word one in the hebrew is a word echad will you say that with me echad and when you combine it with flesh it literally could be could be meant to to mean that they are glued together That there's something that's happening beneath just the the mingling of bodies in this one flesh. Certainly what they're talking about here is is sexual intimacy among a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. But there's so much more going on than just the physical coming together. There's this this union. And so when we look at marriage specifically, we have this side-by-side picture. We have the arm-in-arm picture. And then we have this body-to-body picture of what it means to live in unison, union with another person in the confines of marriage. This word, "ikad" is this graphic, weighty word. It means glued together or fused together at the deepest levels. When the Hebrew people would say the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, they would say, hear, O Israel, hear, the Lord our God is One. The Lord our God is a God. He's fused together at the deepest levels. Anecdotally, this is the only picture that we're talking about today that is reserved only for marriage. And this is God's design, is that it would be used only for marriage. That In this passage, implicitly, there's this vast power, this vast energy that's attached to sexual union between a husband and a wife. There's a creation that happens when people come together physically, and it goes deeper than just the physical. See, we live in a world where sexuality has come to be used in a number of different ways, and we've lost God's intent for it. Unfortunately, as a church, we haven't done a great job of speaking to that either. I mean, we've said things like, well, sex is sort of dirty, and sex is sort of nasty, and so you've got to just save that for your husband or wife, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Right? No, this is God's beautiful, good design. This is not a symptom of the fall. This is gracious invitation from God. That there's a mingling of souls that happens when two people come together in physical intimacy that cannot be fabricated in any other way. And it happens every time people come together. There's no such thing as casual sex. Our culture would love to teach that there is. There's no such thing. It is a God-given, unique thing that allows two people to become one, which is why Paul has such strong words for the church at Corinth about the way that they shepherd and steward and use this gift of physical sexuality. He says, do you not know, writing to this church, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it's written, the two shall become one flesh. It's a gift he's given to us for oneness, for unity. It's a gift he's given to us for not only physical oneness, but spiritual unity and emotional oneness too. It's something he's given us to enjoy. The church has gone through phases where they would say, listen, um, sexual um, intimacy is specifically or only for the purpose of procreation. You know where you can't find that? In the Bible, he's so much better. There's an entire book devoted to the goodness and pleasure of sexual intimacy in a marriage. It's called Song of Songs. Read it. Check it out. Try not to blush. <laughs> you may not want to read it to your kids before they're going to bed, depending on how old they are. But look at this. Look at what, Look at how this intimacy and this union forms. There's three things that happen, three, three requirements for us to step into this union. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So there's a severing of ties with what was in order to step into a new life that is on the horizon. When I do premarital counseling or marriage counseling, one of the main things we see happening in our culture, in our day and our time, is men or women who are unwilling to leave their family of origin in order to create something new. Now, that's not an excuse to not call your parents, okay, or not talk to them anymore. But the relationship with them needs to continue, but it needs to change. That's what the scriptures are saying. So there's this this leaving that's involved in forming this new union. The second thing is the husband and wife, they hold fast to each other. They are intentionally together. Some translations translate this cling. They leave and then they cling to one another, It's this deepening process that each marriage needs to go through. They hold fast. And then there's this covenant. They become one flesh. Something that can't be undone. That happens. So sex without commitment is anti-design. It's anti the way that God has wired the very fib- fibers of our being. That God's design is one man plus one woman for life. Now, let's just clarify for a second before we get on our high horse and try to stand on our holy ground. That goes pretty bad pretty quick if you've read into just a little bit further in Genesis. That gets a little bit off track, right? with polygamy and a number of other things. But that is God's original, good, gracious design that we suck the most joy out of life as we live in his design. That's our conviction. And so this invitation is to leaving, to forming, and then to committing to one another. I love the way G.K. Chesterton put it when he says, when we fall in love, we have the natural inclination Not just to express it to each other, but to make promises to one another. For better or worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. That's the natural promise associated with intimacy in marriage. So if you're married in here, maybe, just maybe, one of your application points from this message is... We need to be more active in having sex with each other. I mean, maybe on your way home, you go, "Hey, that's a—I'd love to apply this message with you." Um, Usually, I don't care what Ryan says, but this time, I would. I'm really feeling the spirit move. That we need to—we need to apply this, right? You're welcome. Verse 25, I'm just going to let that sit there. I'm not following that up with anything. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Yeah, they were both naked and not ashamed because you don't have a few things introduced into the picture yet. There's no guilt. There's nothing that they want to hide from each other. There's nothing in the back of their mind going, I wish I wouldn't have, or if she only knew or if he only knew. There's nothing that would inhibit a complete and total oneness. They are vulnerable with each other, not just in their bodies, but in their souls. They are naked and unashamed. The other reason they're naked and unashamed is because there's no chocolate yet. There's no French fries yet. They live in this vegan paradise, right, where they're just, (laughs) everything's good, right, wonderful. Well, those days are long gone, amen? So, but here's the picture, here's the picture. The passage is far less about physical intimacy, and it's far more about an emotional vulnerability and openness. There's nothing to hide from you. I am fully known, and the other responds, and you are fully loved. That's the picture. So it's side-by-side, arm-in-arm, body-to-body, heart-to-heart. That's the picture of God's design in marriage. There's no greater gift that you can give to somebody and when they open their soul to you, when they're vulnerable and they lay it all out on the table to respond with love, to respond with care, to respond by actually hearing them entering in and saying, you are fully known and fully accepted exactly as you are. And so, yeah, you may want to work on your your union, but more than that, can I encourage you, regardless of whether you're married or unmarried, that we would be people who cultivate lives of vulnerability, who cultivate lives of openness, who invite other people, other safe people in so that we're fully known and also fully loved. I would say, anecdotally, that this passage works like a funnel. You go deeper and deeper into intimacy. And that actually being fully known is a more intimate position than actual physical connection or union. That, that, that you really know me. I've invited you in. Is the pinnacle of human connection. And that can happen whether you're single, whether you're married, anyone, you're human. This is what you were designed for. It's really interesting because Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus about marriage. He's writing about roles, different different things that men and women are called to do inside of a marriage, and then he just sort of Jesus jukes us at the very end of this passage. In verse 31, he says this, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And every one of his original readers is going, well, yeah, we expected that to follow an instruction about marriage. And then as they're nodding, he goes, this is a mystery that's profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And they're like, "Uh uh Wait, wait, what? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the picture of what you're supposed to be. As a church, side by side, arm in arm, one body together, declaring the goodness of our great God and knowing each other. Friends, we have a shared friendship, a shared mission, a shared union. His name is Jesus. And we want to have a shared intimacy because God's design for abundant living is found. And sharing life with one another let's pray and then we're going to go to baptisms. My guess is if you're married in here that that picture looks a little bit airbrushed, a little bit too perfect, maybe. Just come back next week, it's all going to fall apart so <laughs> but this is the picture of before sin enters the world of what we have what it looks like to walk with one another. And unless we know what the goal is, unless we know what the trajectory is, we'll never step into the fullness of what God's designed. So Jesus, this morning, I want to pray specifically over the marriages in this room as we look at the way you've created us and the deficiencies that we have within us May we be more inspired than we are discouraged to really push into you and each other and to work on the areas that we're lacking in. Father, for each one of us, I pray, for the single people in this room, for the widowed, for the divorced people in this room, and for the married people in this room, would you teach us more and more what it looks like to live with our lives open to each other, that we would embrace a shared friendship, a shared mission, and a shared intimacy that would be to your glory and for our joy, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.